I know quite a few of you, a few unfamiliar faces. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of information. I might have to put the reading glasses off and on, too, every now and then. Um, it's been about three years since I went out on the mission field. I've been in the South Jersey area most of my life. Um, a few years back, I actually became a British citizen through my mother who was born in England, so I'm a dual citizen, I'm British and American. And what that did was it actually opened the door for me to do mission work within the European Union without having to have a, a visa. So it was convenient, it was a tool that the Lord gave me. So after praying a few years ago and just getting counsel from different people and having an open door, I moved to Austria, where Calvary Chapel has had a conference center. It's called the Castle. They've had this conference center for the last 25 um, years or so. So they basically had needs, day-to-day -day needs, as far as keeping the place going, running the place. It's a pretty busy conference center and all that. And uh, so I went there. And I had been working for the state of New Jersey for a number of years and sitting in a cubicle in Wildwood, and I just really felt the Lord impressed on my heart that, hey, you don't have to do this, but there's a blessing that's in the midst of this. And if you do it, you won't regret it. So I did it. And it's been a little bit of a journey. When I uh, moved to Austria, the Lord had given me a verse out of Genesis chapter 12. And it was a verse that he had spoken to Abraham about leaving certain things behind and coming to a land that I would show you, that the Lord would show Abraham, basically. So I knew that when I moved to Austria, I knew that that was going to be for a season, and it was going to be a gateway, and that the Lord had something else that he was going to do through the midst of that. So I went there, I spent a year there, <clears throat> and um, during that time I kept seemed to running into Pastor Dave Sylvester. Dave Sylvester is the pastor of Calvary Chapel in York, England, and there's also a Bible college there. And I had actually met Pastor Dave a year previously before I moved to Austria. Um, I had gone there for a missions conference when I was still living in New Jersey. And I went to this conference and I had met Dave and then during the course of the week while I was there, he was there for this conference also, and I seemed to randomly keep running into him. In fact, I went on this hike, and the, there's a whole network of trails in the Austrian Alps behind the castle. And this one day, I ran into him three different times, and twice like on, on different places of this mountain, back behind the castle. And that was 2014. That was before I ever even moved to Austria. So I kind of felt like I was going to connect with him at some point in the future. And uh, anyway, so I moved to Austria, and then I spent a year there. And toward the end of that year, Dave Sylvester came over again for the missions conference that they do every August there. And I connected with him a few more times there, and we got to talking. And he invited me to come visit York in um the fall of 2015, just to take a little bit of a, a break and to see what was happening there. So uh, I went there, and while I was in York, um, it seemed like the Lord was putting things together for me to perhaps serve there. But Dave said, you know, I don't think it's going to work out because you're going to have a tough time getting a visa. And I said, well, that doesn't matter because I'm actually a British citizen. And so that um, kind of paved the way, and it opened the door. So um, in... 
February of 2016, I moved to York, England, and I started helping out there in the church and the Bible college. And right away, I got involved in a handful of ministries that I pretty much still involved in. I've been doing the same things more or less since I've been there. Sometimes when you write a newsletter, it's like, how do I make the same thing sound a little bit different and all that that sort of thing? But um, it's neat. It's a blessing to be there. So I'm teaching at the Bible College. Since I've been there, I've taught through the Gospel of John. I've taught through the Gospel of uh, Luke, the Book of Acts, the Book of Romans. And this semester coming up, beginning in February, I'm going to be teaching through uh, the Book of Acts again. Also involved in worship ministry when, when I have a voice. Uh, kind of rotate through that. Something else that's <clears throat> interesting, and I got involved in this early on, is the prison ministry. There's the um, It's called the Humber Prison. And it's about 45 minutes from York, and Calvary Chapel York has had a ministry there for a number of years. And basically what we do, we go in there one Sunday a month, and we do a service for the inmates. There's about 1,500 guys there who are in for all different sorts of crimes. And we go through about eight different large um, fences and walk down a series of corridors and all that. And then we get into this chapel, and then they bring the guys in, and then... We do worship, and then we share a message from the gospel, and then we um, fellowship. We sit around and have tea or coffee and just pray with the guys, and it's really a neat time. And the Holy Spirit is moving in that place, and he's doing a work. These guys are locked up. You know, they can't really go anywhere, and some of them have hard hearts, as you would would expect, (laughs) but some of them are open. And uh, so I actually had a chance to, to, to preach the gospel in there last Sunday, last Sunday morning. And a couple of the guys accepted the Lord as their Savior. Um, there's an interesting thing that you can pray about. Um, I've been working in the Humber prison for about the, close to two years now, just going in vol- volunteering as, you know, doing the service that we do. But there's actually a position that's become available. It's called a uh, free church chaplain. And it's a um, a prison chaplain, and it's a part-time paid position. And I prayed about it, and I just felt the Lord lead me to apply for it. So I applied. I put my application in and all that. It's actually a, a British civil service position, not secret service, civil service. And um, so I put the application in, and I actually have an interview. There's six guys that are being interviewed for it. And I'm one of them, and the interviews are going to happen at the end of January, the 30th or the 31st. So it'll be interesting to see what the Lord does through that. It would be, it would probably be one or two days a week, and uh, it would just be a really interesting kind of way that the Lord, you know, it just, it seems like it might be the sort of thing that God just might do. So if you could pray for that, I'd appreciate that, just his will to be done. Um, another thing that I'm involved in, and I shared a little bit about this last year, there's the city of Hull, and Hull is about an hour from York. And through a series of events, the Lord opened the door to uh, go over there and start doing ministry close to two years ago now. And um, so we do, there's a Bible study. The Bible study is still really small. It's basically just people from York that are coming over to Hull, and we do this Bible study there. Uh, but while we're there, every week we um, do outreach 
in the street and recently got some got like a little street PA and all that and so we'll go over there about an hour hour and a half before the Bible study and just set up this amp on on the street and just start doing worship music and it's interesting because you know the Christians walk by and they give you the thumbs up and and they come over and talk and it's a neat way to kind of start conversations and then there's you know there's the demon possessed people too that come out of the woodwork but you have to expect that sort of thing so I don't know what the Lord is doing there at the end of the day. All I know is that we've shared the Lord with a lot of people, and whether a church starts there or not, whatever the Lord's will is, you know, that that's fine. But we're going over there regularly. So those are um, <clears throat> pretty much the things that I've been involved in in the U.K. And um, so it's been an interesting ride, and appreciate your prayers and all that. The, the U.K. is a pretty dark place if you think about it, it was quite a light in terms of the missionaries that were sent out. You know, you think about Hudson Taylor going into China and just all these missionaries that were sent out to different places of the world, bringing the message of the gospel. And now it's this dark, very secular society. There's still a form of maybe a little bit of piety on the outside, but I would say that they're a couple years ahead of the United States in terms of the immorality and just all the um, the extreme just kind of things that would have been shocking, you know, a few years back, and the things that they're embracing and the things that they're legislating and all that sort of thing. So whatever the Lord's will is, I mean, however long I'm there, I feel like the Lord's called me there to manifest the love of Jesus and to, you know, present people with the truth of the scripture wherever they may be. Uh, there's one thing about when I was living here, it was like I was always either sitting in a car or you're not really out walking so much in society where there are a lot of people walking around. In England, there's a lot more people that walk and ride bikes and all that, so you just seem to run into a lot more people on the street. It's just the the way that the culture is over there. And so I find myself talking to people about the Lord, and he just opens these doors, and it's a, it's a pretty neat thing. But anyway, um, I'll share a little bit more about that along the way and I've been praying over the last few months I think it was a couple months ago Tony asked me to share when I, I came back and I was half expecting that so um, I started to pray and I had a couple different ideas and even um, yesterday I was still thinking about possibly sharing a completely different message but I think this is what the Lord has so there's a few um, a few passages a few different passages that I'd like to look at and um, I'm really going blind here without my reading glasses. Okay. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you've probably heard teachings on the book of, of Nehemiah at retreats and conferences and, you know, just about, you know, building walls and spiritual warfare in the midst of trying to do a work of God and all that sort of thing. And um, I'd like to look a little bit at the story that we find in the book in Nehemiah, but from a slightly different <coughs> track, and look at chapter 13. But first we have to look a little bit at the backstory to kind of get up to speed in getting there. And first of all, we all know, most of us, right, that from the book in Nehemiah, that he's just this guy, he's the cupbearer to the king, and he's there in the court in Susa, which was the... Um, it was basically a, a, a winter palace for Persian kings. And he gets this word. Someone comes back who had been to Jerusalem. And at this point, there had been a couple waves of, after the 
the Babylonian captivity, there have been a couple waves of people who have gone back and the temple's been partially rebuilt and there's been some kind of progress made, but there's, they're still in a really bad way. It's the people of God who are still the covenant people of God. God still has a plan for this people. But Nehemiah gets this word that the people in Jerusalem are in great distress. The um, gates, the, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And this thing grieves Nehemiah because he knows who he is. He, has a, he knows his identity and he knows that he is one of the people of God and that God has a purpose for his people in working out the plan of redemption for humankind. So Nehemiah gets this burden and he starts to pray and Lord, and he, he enters into the collective guilt of his people. We've sinned and all this has happened. It's our own fault because we've sinned and we've been carried away from our land. But you still have a plan, Lord. So he starts to pray that the Lord would somehow use him in, as an instrument to help rebuild these walls and get things going again. And we know from the story that the king sends him back and he just has the favor of the Lord upon his life. And he begins to do this work back in, in Jerusalem. And um, in 52 days, in the face of great opposition and spiritual warfare, the walls around Jerusalem get built. And it's this miraculous sort of thing that everyone, you know, they just had to say, wow, it must have been God that did that because there's no human way possible that that could have happened. And there's a person I want to zero in on a little bit, and there's this guy, Tobiah, and Tobiah is an enemy of the people of God. If we look in Nehemiah 2.10, it says that he's an Ammonite official, and it says that he was deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And, you know, keep that thought in mind, because that is the true heart of Tobiah, and it's not going to change. As you read through Nehemiah, you know, there are all these different things, but but that is always his true heart, that he's deeply disturbed that someone has come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And in the same sort of way, you know, you know I believe that the enemy of our soul and the enemy of humankind, the devil, right, he's deeply disturbed when someone comes to seek the well-being of people who need to know God. So, um, it tells us in, in, in Nehemiah 2.10 that Tobiah was an Ammonite, and uh, we know from Deuteronomy 23.3 that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. So Tobiah is an Ammonite, and we know that it was the Ammonites, it was the Ammonite king who hired Balaam, right? The, the children of Israel are coming out of Israel, and they're just rolling through. And none of the, none of the gods of the land, right? Because in, in the ancient Near East, the, um, the, there was this idea that a god was tied to a land and that sort of thing. And the Israelites, they have the favor of the Lord, and they're just rolling through. And so the king of the Ammonites figures that I can't stop them, so maybe if I can get someone to curse them, 
then maybe they will be cursed. But we know that the Lord turned that around for a blessing rather than a curse. So anyway, Tobiah is of this, this heritage, and you can trace Tobiah throughout the book of Nehemiah, and he's this perpetually antagonistic force that comes against the work of God in building the wall. He's, he's deeply disturbed in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, and later in that chapter, he begins to scorn them as they begin to build the wall. In, in chapter 4, they start to mock. It says that Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall. And then chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. They became very angry and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. So there's this escalation and it's just this, what we see in the beginning, that there's something in their heart, in this guy Tobiah's heart, that is against the people of God. In chapter 4, verse 11, it says, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So they actually have murder in their hearts. Um, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Now when it happened that Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no breaks in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sambalat and Geshem uh, sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So you can trace this whole thing about Tobiah, that he just has this evil in his heart, and it's manifested in a, a series of different forms of attacks against the people of God while they're trying to do this wall, and if you think about Jerusalem, right, what is inside of the wall? There's the temple. The temple is the place of worship. It's the place where God was worshipped. And the wall is kind of the barrier around that. So there's this antagon antagonism just against all that, against anything that's connected with the worship of God. So Nehemiah comes and he gets the wall built and he basically becomes the governor from 445 B.C. until 433 B.C. So he's there for about 12 years doing this work and he becomes the governor and everything's kind of humming along there. There's different social reforms that happen. There's spiritual reforms. There's this just this high view of the Sabbath that, that he holds and this just idea that, you know, we were carried away into a foreign land because of our sin. So we're going to just get right before the Lord and we're going to have this thing going and everything's going to be good. So he's there for about 12 years as governor. But really the, what I wanted to look at today is there's this shift that happens when you get to the end of chapter 12 and then you get into the beginning verses of chapter 13. There's actually a, a gap that's in here. And... Depending on which commentator you look at, there's a couple different... Some people think that he's, Nehemiah has gone from Jerusalem anywhere from one to two years up to eight or nine years, depending on which commentary you read. And he goes away. He's called back to the Babylonian court. And he comes 
back sometime later, whether it's a few years or, or many years, and he finds out that Tobiah, who is the enemy <coughs> of the people of God, has moved into the temple and he's actually been accommodated. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, I'll read this. It says that, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where he previously had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, um, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw... Um, all the household goods of Tobiah out, out of the room. He threw his stuff out. And then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And you can you can just imagine what Nehemiah was, must have felt like if you trace his life and you, you think of you know he way back when the whole story begins. He's just serving the king in Babylon, and he gets this word that his people, the, the gates are, are burned with fire, the walls are broken down, and he's grieved in his heart, and he knows that it's because of the sin of the people, and he goes through all this process and does all this work. And sometimes, you know, ministry can be like that, where you just do so much, and it seems like there's just such a little result. And, and then he goes away, and he comes back, and there's Tobiah, the very enemy of the people of God, who's, who's now living in the temple. He's been given a room by a corrupt priest, right? This guy, Eliashib. He says, hey, Tobiah, come here, have a, have a room, you know, stay in the temple and all that sort of thing. And you can just imagine that Nehemiah comes back and he's got to be purple with rage, right? And um, so it, it says, it grieved him bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room, you can just imagine this, This, I mean, I have no idea what Nehemiah looked like, but just the kind of rage as he's just like throwing this stuff out onto the street and all that and and um, and all that sort of thing. And it says that he brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And if you think about that, you know, the articles of the house of God if you go back into the Old Testament, the way that the temple was constructed, was a, it was constructed in a very specific way. It was constructed with very specific articles that were um, supposed to be used, dedicated, and used for temple worship. Um, you have this room and, and the grain offering, the thing that you would offer as an act of worship, and the frankincense. And, and these things have been moved out so an enemy of the, of the people of God can move in and have the, this place. And... It's this picture of an accommodation of the enemy in, in the place of worship. And I think that we probably see that today 
perhaps within the church there's an accommodation of the enemy, you know? Is, is it Satan in church? Well, it doesn't always look like that. But, I mean, you know, Tobiah's a nice guy. Well, hey, you know, I'm a nice guy. I just want a room in the temple. You know, don't, I'll just, I'm not going to bother anybody. I'm just in, my, in, in this room here where the offerings of God belong. And I think that you see this picture of the enemy wanting to be accommodated in the place of worship. And if you can't beat them, join them. His whole, um, I mean, the first, those chapters of Nehemiah, he's just this incessant antagonistic force where he's, his, his never forget his true heart that he was deeply disturbed that someone came to get the, peop- the people of God together and, and all that. Um, so, so if you can't win with a full frontal assault, the devil that is, he'll try to sneak in the back way and you know, hey, I'm a nice guy, just let me have a room in the temple and everything will be cool. And, and a priest who is either corrupt like Eliashib or someone who's not that spiritually sharp makes the accommodation for an enemy of the people of God to live in the place of worship. And that's a real problem today. I mean, we can all, I'm sure we can fill in the blanks. And um, think of many illustrations along that line. I'd like to also look at um, another passage, and we'll kind of tie tie this together and make some applications. There's another passage that we find in 2 Kings chapter 12, and Jehoash, sometimes named Joash, there's actually a, a Joash who was king of Israel and a Joash who was king of Judah. This is the Judean king, Joash, and um, we find this account in 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. And Joash made some reforms while he was under the good influence of Jehoiada the, the priest, but after uh, Jehoiada the priest passed off the scene, then Joash became corrupt. But at least while the priest was alive, um, while the priest was alive, he makes these reforms. So 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, it says, And Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them the and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. And that's the word that the Lord spoke to me a, a little while back when I was praying and kind of putting this message together. I was getting a couple different passages from different places. But just this idea, let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. And I just felt myself meditating on that verse and if you think about it, the priests were to fix the dilapidation and we're, we're you know, the, the Bible tells us that we're a royal priesthood, right? So this isn't, you know, written here to a, a specific class of people, but um, as Christians, we're all called to kind of speak into situations. We're, we're not Israel and we don't have a literal temple that falls into dilapidation, but there are 
things that we can see. The Bible tells us that we're a temple made up of living stones, and we're not going to be able to fix the whole world, or, or we're not going to be able to solve all the problems of the church, but we can repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found within the domain that God has placed us. And there are going to be things that the Lord is going to draw our attention to that are that are right in front of us. You know, there's a lot of, not everything is our battle, not every fight is our fight. You know, you hear about things in the church, things in the world, and you could spend your whole life kind of chasing after everything that's not right. Um, not every fight is our fight, but there are going to be these things that God is going to bring in front of us, and by his spirit, right, We, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit, and sometimes he's just going to put us in a situation and he's going to say, hey, now is the time. I want you to open your mouth and I'm going to give you a word. And there's this idea here of repairing damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that we can look at and put our fingers on, but... It's it's really when the Lord puts us in a situation that um, he's going to give us the thing to say. So anyway, um, earlier I mentioned about the city of Hull. I spent some time over there uh, pretty regularly doing ministry on the streets and that sort of thing. There's this particular church that's called Hull Minster. It used to be called Holy Trinity Church. Now it's Hull Minster. And it's been there since the year 1300 about. It's the church that um, William Wilberforce was baptized in. William Wilberforce was from Hull. He was the um, member of parliament who was greatly responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in England in the 19th century. Um, but anyway, there's this church, Hullminster, and I, I walk by it pretty regularly. It's, part, it's in part of the old city. And um, this past summer, they actually... I was surprised when I heard about it. They ho they hosted a, a service of welcome for LGBT people, um, and this particular service was officiated by a transgender Anglican priest, um, someone who was born male but living as a lesbian woman, also a priest within the Anglican Church, and uh, I believe he's based out of Manchester Cathedral. But this person came over, and they did this service of welcome for LGBT people. And, you know, the Bible says that we're to speak the truth in love. And does God love those people? Absolutely, 100%. Jesus died on the cross, you know, for all sin. The Bible says that the only sin that won't be forgiven is the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? But there's this idea that there's an accommodation within the church for for this sort of thing and you know there's a sense of grief sometimes you know Nehemiah he was grieved when he comes back and he finds this Tobiah in the living in, in a room in the temple and sometimes you know it's one thing when we look around the world and we look at society and we look at Western civilization that in a lot of Western civilization, which in a lot of ways is running off of a cliff. Um, and there's a grief sometimes in our hearts, but then there's a whole other level of grief when you look at the church and people have, you know, it says that truth has fallen in the streets. 
And there's this idea that, you know, the scriptures have just been, I don't know, they're just not being read or not being um, valued or, or that sort of thing. And there's this kind of grief in your heart when you think about this is the church of God and it, do they not have a Bible and do they not understand how to read it and that sort of thing. And there's a grief that can arise in your heart because of that. And so anyway, I, there's this service that this church had, and on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, that's not my fight, that's not my church, it's not my, my business, let the dead bury the dead, it was part of the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church is also known as the C of E, or the, Chur the Church of England. And so I'm thinking, you know, that, that there's, you know they're, they're probably not even born again anyway, so let the dead bury the, bed, the dead. And... Um, and, you know, every fight is not a Christian's, every fight is not our fight. It's only the ones that God says, hey, I want you to speak into this. Those are the ones that we're responsible for. So you pray and you wonder how you could ever begin to speak into a situation like that and how you could, you know, it's like almost overwhelming. Like you, you don't, you know, I'm not one to go protest and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, but... So I prayed, I was like, Lord, is there anything that, how can I even begin to to have any sort of impact, or do I even, am I even supposed to have any sort of impact on that sort of thing? And an interesting thing happened. It wasn't too long after that that I was invited to this um, prayer service at an Anglican church. There's a, a little village called Rickall, which is um, about 10 miles outside of York. And they were having this a prayer service that was going to be attended by the Archbishop of York and a couple of friends of mine in, invited me to, to go there. So so I go, yeah, you know, check it out and all that sort of thing. It was a Saturday and and um, so I go there and the Archbishop of York is actually the second highest person in the Anglican Church. The way that the Anglican Church is set up, the, the Queen is the figurehead, but then there's the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is kind of like the, the, the top cleric the top person in charge, and then right below that there's the Archbishop of York. And the Archbishop of York is in, in charge of the Anglican Church in the whole north of England. He actually has a seat in the House of Lords in, in Parliament, and he has oversight of the Church of England in, in the north of England, which includes Hull, which includes this um, Hull Minster where they had this particular service. And so anyway, I I, I had no intention to meet him or talk to him or anything like that. So I go to the service and the Archbishop was sitting up front. He didn't really turn around and say anything to anyone. And then after the service, they had this ministry bus parked outside. It was a double-decker British bus and they had it converted into like a, a coffee shop ministry sort of thing. It was an interesting bus. So me and my friends, we decided to go up and we went to the, the top because who wouldn't want to go to the top of a double-decker bus, right? And they have these couches up there and a, a table in our, there. So, so we go up and, and we sit down. And um, all of a sudden, the, the, the archbishop comes up and he sits down next to me. And um, this, is the, this is a guy that, you know, you, you have to wait months if, to get an appointment to talk with him, if you can even get an appointment to talk with him. And we're just up there and he sits down next to me. And he put his hand on my knee. He's like, how are you doing? And all that. And my, a couple of the friends that, are, that I was up there with, you know, they started making, you know, just talk about 
some local issues in the community and all that sort of thing. And I just felt this burning sort of thing in my heart that God wanted me to just, you know, ask him about this service. And because Hull is within his, his, his turf, it's his, I mean, he's not the pastor of that massive church, but he's the top, second top guy in the Church of England and all that. So I, so... Um, I said, well, what do you think ab- about that? They have this LGBT service, and I mean, the, the Archbishop is is a good man. If you look at his record, he's come out against same-sex marriage, and he, he's made some good decisions and all that, but he's also caved in in some other, some other areas, and 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 I, I just felt like I had this word, so so I said, what do you think about that? And he said, oh, well, you, you know, you can't be too judgmental and, and all that, and I was like, well, I agree, but, you know, we do have to, to speak the truth in love. So I just felt like the Lord had this, this word that he wanted me to give him. So I started to share my testimony with him, how I got saved. And I, you know, I, I was never an atheist. I grew up in the Catholic Church, always kind of believed in God, but my life was not submitted to the Lord. And I'm, I'm sharing this with the Archbishop and... When I was, let's see, when I was about, when I was 21 years old, I was living in a a winter rental on Morningside Road in Ocean City. And we had a, we had a, me and my friends there, we had a Christmas tree decorated with bush beer cans and, and all that sort of thing, just doing the whole party thing. And, and I knew that my life was not right with the Lord. And I knew that the Holy Spirit had been drawing me. And there was this one particular evening, and it was January 1990, and I was working the graveyard shift at the 34th Street Acme at the time, and I was just, I had slept during the day, I woken up, and it was evening, and I'm just sitting there washing dishes, you know, on this cold January evening by the kitchen sink, and I just feel, you know, the, the Lord knocking on the door of my heart and just wanting me to surrender my life to Him. And... I did that, and I was born again that night, and Jesus changed my life. So I'm sharing this with the Archbishop, and then I remember not long after, you know, it's like I, I got saved, and it's like the, the living God crashes into your life, and then the Holy Spirit begins this work of sanctification. I remember reading Second Timothy 2.19, and that verse says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So I'm sharing with the Archbishop that I got saved, but then there was this work that the Holy Spirit began to do in my life, and, and he was speaking to me through the scriptures that like, hey, you know, you are born again, you are a new creation. There's this work that, that I want, I want to change you, and I want your life to be different and it's an inside job because it's the spirit of god that's working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure so it's not like in a legalistic sense like you gotta stop doing this 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 and this and all that but it's this work of the spirit and i'm sharing this with the archbishop and i think the reason that god first of all had me share my testimony with him was to demonstrate that normal christian experience after salvation involves turning from idols, like it says in First Thessalonians, how they turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. So a salvation experience when you come to know the Lord and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, 
it automatically must involve turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. And, and I'm sharing this with him. And then, you know, Ephesians 4.15 4, speaks of, it tells us to speak the truth in love, right? And speaking the truth in love involves two components, and those are truth and love. And pretty complicated, right? And so you can have a, a harsh and legalistic truth that lacks love, and that's, you know, you're all sinners and you're going to hell and all that sort of thing. Uh, or you can have love that lacks truth, which really isn't love because it lacks an accurate diagnosis of a condition, you know, and perhaps you've heard, sometimes you've heard the rhetorical question, well, is there anything wrong with anything? And obviously we know there are many things wrong with many things, but some people today would say, well, hey, there's nothing really wrong with anything, right? And so anyway, the message that, that I, I felt I had for the archbishop was that, like, hey, uh, with all due respect, my life was a mess, and I got born again, and God changed my life as I, as I brought my sin, sin, S-I-N, as I brought my sin to the foot of the cross and received the forgiveness as I was washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And, and then I went on to, to say that, you know, there are, there are two great errors that are happening in the church today. There's these two extremes that we see happening, and, and one of them is the harsh and legalistic thing that it's the truth, right? Which is theologically accurate. You're going to hell because you have all the sin in your life and all that sort of thing. Well, well, that's true, but it lacks the love of God. The other error is to say that, well, there's nothing really wrong with anything. And, you know, you're great and God loves you. And God does love you, absolutely. Jesus died, you know, for our sin. But to say that there's no standard and, and, and there's no such thing as sin as, as, you know, an accommodation of Tobiah in the temple, right? Like this, this service. I mean, God loves those people that were at that service, but for the church to say, hey, this is great and God approves of this and this, this is a wonderful thing, that's a whole other different story. That, that's to say that there's nothing really wrong with anything, and if there's nothing really wrong with anything, then why did Jesus die on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only one begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. So the problem is, is that if there's no such thing as sin, if we can't really say that there's something as sin, then how does someone ever come to a relationship with God, how, how does anyone ever hear the message of the gospel? I mean, the message of the gospel is that there's this thing inside of all of our hearts. We know, we can go back to Genesis, that, you know, God said, in the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And you have the enemy. Oh, you will surely not die, as God said, and, you know, his lies and that sort of thing. But Adam or Eve ate first, and then she gave to her husband, and, and he ate. And sin entered into the human race. And everyone ever since then has been born defiled with a twisted, bent human nature. There's something in my heart that's just twisted and tweaked in a way 
that manifests itself in all. I mean, you know, you, you go on to any news website and you can read about whatever the manifestation of sinful nature of the day is. There's always, you know, there, there's always something out there. And I was sharing this with, with the guys in the prison last week that it's not, you know, it's not about being good because sometimes people talk about, oh, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and all that sort of thing. I mean, there's mold on the other side of that leaf if you turn it over. What needs to happen is a new nature. So we're all born into the world and we have this nature that has been inherited. We've all been defiled in, through Adam. One man's sin infected the whole human race. That's why the things, the good things that I know I should do, I don't do. And the bad things that I know I shouldn't do, I do do. And that's why Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus, right? So the message of the gospel and, and the thing that if you follow any of those two extremes, right, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, or, hey, you're great, and there's nothing wrong with anything, you're, you're not getting the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is that I, I have a twisted, corrupt nature that needs to be brought to the foot of the cross. I need to surrender and just receive that forgiveness. Yes, I, I am a twisted, defiled human being, and my life is a mess, just like January 1990 at 10 Morningside Road in Ocean City, New Jersey, when I'm washing dishes. Yes, sort of. My life is a mess. I acknowledge that. I need you. I give up. And, and then I, I found myself in a, a Bible study a couple days after that, and um, the Lord changed my life, right? So I'm sitting there on, on the upper deck of this double-story, double-decker bus, and I feel like there's just this, this whole thing that I was sharing with the arch, what I just shared with you guys, sharing with the archbishop, and it was just a surreal thing because I felt like I, I, I didn't seek him out. And I had just, I mean, it was later, it was a couple of days later, I, I realized like, wow, I, I had actually prayed like, Lord, how could I ever speak into a situation like that at that pertaining to that church in Hull about a, a, an LGBT service? And, and, then the, and then not long after that, I find myself and the archbishop sits down next to me and it's like, God gives me this message. And I felt like, I just delivered this message and I felt a release after I delivered it to him. It's like, okay, whatever, you know, whatever he wants to do with it, that's cool at this point. I mean, you know, it's like Ezekiel, the watchman on the wall. You know, you've delivered the message and God is going to call us sometimes to, to speak the truth in love and he's going to give us a word for someone and it may not always be comfortable to deliver and it may be awkward but if, it's, if you know it's the Lord, open your mouth. And, you know, we're just sitting there, and I finished what I had to say, and there was just this awkward couple minutes of, like, <laughs> silence, like, whoa, hey. But, I mean, it's always better to obey the Lord. And um, so I don't, I don't know what the fruit of that, but I know that a word went forth. And, um, yeah, so, so the Lord is going to give us these opportunities. You know, we're going to see dilapidation in the temple, right? We're going to see things. And we're not called to, you know, bang in every nail that's sticking out and, and 
all these different things, but, but there are those times because we're all members of the body of Christ. We're all these living stones that are fit together, building up, made, making this temple where, where, the, where God is worshipped, right? And because we have the living God living inside of us, and he loves people, and his grace is sufficient, his grace will cover all sin. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's a loving message. And it's freely available. And that's the message that, that we have to get out. But he's going to give us opportunities to speak the truth in love. So don't be afraid to do um, that sort of thing.